Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and we have got something a little extra for you at the end of this week. After that really great talk with River Butcher about what it is like to be a gender non-conforming comedian right now, I really wanted to invite actor, writer, and comedian Brandon Kyle Goodman on the podcast to continue that conversation. Brandon, who, like River, uses both he, him, and they, them pronouns, is a writer for one of my favorite animated comedies, Big Mouth, and one of the stars of that show's brand new spinoff series, Human Resources, which premieres on Netflix today. On both shows, Brandon plays Walter the Lovebug, who he describes to me as the definition of love and chaos. I'll let him explain. Love is smothering, like a rogue nurse who's taken mercy into her own hands. Wow, I guess I have a lot to learn about love. (gasps) I have an incredible idea. You should learn about love from the bug who knows the most about love. And that bug happens to be grabbing you by the collar right now. Are you going to kill me? Ooh, better, honey. I'm going to teach you. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode of the podcast, and we'll be back with another new episode on Tuesday. Here's me with Brandon Kyle Goodman. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, I'm a I'm a huge Big Mouth fan and, and fan of yours as well. Um, so it's exciting to have you here. I have to admit, I was kind of skeptical of human resources just when I heard the, the concept announced. I was like, I love Big Mouth so much. I don't know how it's going to live up to that. And I just got to watch the whole first season and, and really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, oh, I think you guys you. really nailed it. So um, yeah. Uh, how did this all happen? How did you... Uh, how did human resources happen as this uh, this new show out of Big Mouth? Um, we came in for like the first day of season five. At least this is my experience. Um, and there was already kind of talk about this spinoff and introducing these two new characters, which were Sonia and Walter the Lovebugs, and this concept that we would meet them in season five and they would take us into this spinoff. But I think none of us really knew much about the spinoff. I think the uh, EPs, Nick, Andrew, Mark, and Jen, and Kelly, uh, the creator, uh, they had an idea of it, but we were still kind of in the dark a little bit. Um, and then, you know, as we fleshed out season five and then st- prepped for the room, it just started to uh, start to all make sense, started to all come together. Yeah. When I had uh, Nick Kroll on this podcast, you know, I think it must've been like nearly three years ago, he was already kind of like talking about how there might be a spinoff and, um, but I didn't know too much about it then. Um, you mentioned, you know, that uh, the character of Walter the Lovebug was one of these new characters introduced in season five that kind of led us into human resources. And that's the character that, that you voice. Was that always the plan that you were going to, because you were already a writer on the show and then you now you know play Walter. Was that from the beginning? Was that your character? 
No, 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 no. Um, we actually didn't have any um, anyone attached to Walter or Sonia when we came in. Uh, I believe that uh, Pam Adlon was always the dream for Sonia, but they were still figuring out who the voices for Walter was. And there were some, you know, pitches that we were throwing around. And then um, I really just loved him, um, and so started reading him in the room for like the for our like table reads and stuff like that. Um, and that it just seemed to really connect. And and so we just <laughs> made a seamless transition, which was cool. That's pretty cool because I mean they do like to bring in big names for for a lot of these Huge these roles, um, and there are a lot of them. In, in human resources. Um, so yeah, was that surprising to you that they kind of let you run with it? Uh, yes, 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 yes. I was, um, you know, there's the the roster of the cast is quite intimidating. Um, so I wasn't quite sure if I would uh, be uh, added to that list, um, but it was very exciting that they trusted me enough to to do that. Um, so I'm just honored to, to be on the journey, to be on the ride. Yeah. How would you describe Walter the love bug for anyone who maybe hasn't seen the show yet? Um, I say that Walter is um, the definition of love and chaos together as one. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the, your best friend who, you know, sometimes you got to hold their hair back because they, they drink a little too much, but they have the best intentions. But sometimes you got to check them. Oh, my God, Sonia, did I tell you what Blake did for Gwen this weekend? Let me guess. Another loving gesture? He made her breakfast in bed. It was B-A-N-A-N-A-S. That's from one of her songs. And he made her banana pancakes, too. Hey, have they ever fucked on those spinning chairs? Sonia, of course. <laughs> God, I love being a love bug. Yeah, it's a living. Um, and you got to do a lot in season five, but you know, you you obviously get to do even more in this new spinoff, Human Resources. Were there moments or episodes or, or things that really stand out to you as uh, moments in this new series that you really enjoyed getting to do? Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite episodes for Walter is uh, the second to last episode, um, which Victor Kinosh wrote. And it's when his client Yara is kind of wrestling with the, you know, without giving too much away, but just kind of wrestling with dementia and kind of what it means to be towards the end of one's life. Um, and so that was really special because, you know, Walter walks her down that kind of last road. And um, I keep saying that when my grandmother passed away about 10 years ago, I just wasn't mature enough to know how to show up for her in those last days. And so there was something really healing and restorative, uh, being able to to do Walter. And Walter, who I think, does an exceptional job at it. Um, there was something really beautiful about getting to play those final moments again. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that episode because it's a really beautiful episode and um, yeah, it really deals with grief in a way that is, that hasn't been dealt with on, on Big Mouth over the five seasons at all. I don't think, cause you know, Big Mouth is mostly about younger people and this show, you get to expand that a bit and, and including this, you know, older woman at the end of her life. Um, so I imagine that that's part of the excitement of the spinoff too, is it kind of you really broaden the scope of what you can cover. Yeah, you know, what's been really exciting about Big Mouth itself is I always say that, you know, all of us go through puberty and none of us really reckon with the traumatic experience it is. And so like watching Big Mouth gives us this language for these experiences we had, which I think having that language helps us, you know, heal those wounds and kind of re-examine these um 
these quote unquote truths that we started to believe about ourselves because of what other kids told us or teachers told us and, and trying to undo that. Um, so it's really exciting to do human resources, which gets to expand into different areas of our human existence uh, and give language to those other difficult areas, which grief is such a difficult area. Birth is a difficult area. Um, all these, these moments of our life that you don't know how to do until you get there. Like no one can prepare you for the death of a loved one or the birth of a child. Like you just have to kind of go through it. Um, and so to uh, have a show that is showing it and giving us language to reckon with it, I think is really exciting. Yeah. Um, I want to go back a little bit uh, to sort of how you got to Big Mouth. Um, I know you joined as a writer in season four, right? Um, were you a fan of the show? Because it had already been on for a little while at that point. And, and how did that happened that you that you were able to join as a writer? Yeah, it was very, um, it was so random. Months before I was shooting um, the Modern Love episode in New York and one of the PAs was like, there's a show that you should watch I think you would love. And it happened to be Big Mouth. <laughs> so I had like was like, oh, cool. So I got back to LA and I started watching Big Mouth. And then my agent had called and said, hey, uh, Big Mouth is looking for new writers. Um, they're considering doing this story with Matthew and they're kind of looking for especially queer writers and they want to meet you. Um, and so I was like, oh, shit. At that point, I hadn't uh, been uh, – I'd written scripts but hadn't been in a writer's room. So this was my first one. So I, I met them. Um, uh, then I met Nick. Uh, and it, kind of the rest is kind of history. They they hired me and I had a job in January. <laughs> it was great. So was was that the storyline that you – what was that storyline that you kind of focused on at the beginning? Was it the, the Matthew um, – Matthew and his mom. Yeah, I mean, you know, we as writers when we all kind of um work on all the storylines, but I think that they they knew that they wanted to do a story with Matthew and his mother and um Matthew's always been out on the show, but kind of having his family reckon with it and seeing what that would look like uh and particularly his religious mother and I have that exact experience of having a religious mother and and reckoning with that. So, um I think that they were looking to to find people with that kind of experience to breathe into um those stories. Oh, mom, I'm not going to make a cake with a woman ever. I don't like the ingredients. I don't understand the utensils. Nothing would rise. I do not like this metaphor anymore, Matthew. Okay. How about this, mom? I'm gay. I know you think that, but you're only 13. How can you know? Because I I just know. And deep down, you have to know too. I mean, how many times a year do we watch Dreamgirls? And that was so much fun. We can still have fun. No, it's all different now. I saw your texts. I know what that eggplant emoji is and all the things you're doing with each other's vegetables. Mom, I haven't done any of those things, really. But, but you want to. And I just can't stand the idea of you making these sinful choices and baking in hell for all eternity because Jesus is watching. And how did you go about doing that? How did you bring in your own real life experience into this this fictional character? It was actually beautiful because that, you know, for that season, there were actually a lot of us in the room who were queer and had our own reckonings and stories. So like any uh, of the storylines, we just like talk about our own experiences and share of ourselves. And sometimes you have a what I call or what somebody else had coined a vulnerability hangover where you're like, did I just say too much? Did I just share <laughs> way too much? But the room is always really safe for everyone's stories to kind of come in. And then, you know, Andrew and, and Jen and Mark and Nick really take 
take those stories and help shape it to uh, fit the characters. Um, yeah, but it all starts with it all starts from a truthful place, which I think is what resonates with our, our audience. Is that uh, it all feels so specific? Was there a first episode that was your episode that you were credited as the writer on? And what? Yeah, was I co-wrote my first episode. I got to co-write with Mitra Juhari, who is uh, one of the funniest, most talented yeah, uh, human beings. Yeah. She's incredible. So we wrote the episode in season four. I think it's called Four Stories About Hand Stuff. It was the episode where um, Jay and Lola, Matthew and Aiden, Andrew masturbating, and then Jesse getting fingered. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were able to write that together, which was exciting. I do remember Mitra's joke, which was something, because it was so specific, which is, I believe it's in the Jay story where his brothers are trying to explain to him uh, how to finger, and they liken it to like leaving a booger up in there, and then if you go back in there and the booger's still there, <laughs> something, <laughs> something along that line, which is so specific that it's like, that's a Mitra Johari joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's season four. That's the season where they're at camp, right? Yes. Mostly. They start, yeah. they start in starting camp. camp the yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that. As someone who went to camp and had a lot of camp experiences, that was really fun to watch. Yes. Um, and one of the things that, you know, is in that, in, from that first episode is the introduction of this new character, Natalie, who's a, a trans character who comes in to camp and is coming to camp after transitioning. I mean, how all the kids deal with that. Um, I know, uh, I think, Patty Harrison was involved in the creation of yes. that character, um, but I imagine you were there as well. Um, can you just talk about what it was like to to bring that character into this world? I'm uh, really exciting. Uh, you know, Patty and Andrew had worked on that story. I think before we actually got to the room, so they were working on it maybe a couple weeks before. So when we arrived, and you know, obviously my first time in a room. Um, that was on the table that there was this new character, Natalie, and we were going to, you know, kind of explore her relationship to Jesse and, and talk about her transition. Um, but it was really special because, you know, one, having Patty in the room to really make sure that the, the voice was authentic and specific, um, but also to, get, again, give that language to our audience, you know, the, our audience who is trans and our audience who have trans friends and trans loved ones. And, and I believe that representation is so important in building empathy, right? Being able to learn about um, some an experience or a walk of life that isn't your own in an authentic, specific way, I think develops empathy, even if it isn't your own walk. So that was really exciting to be a part of that. And I think that's what the show does well in general. Now, I'm sure you all have questions, right? And without consulting Natalie, I'm simply going to open up the floor for a free-for-all like a session of Parliament. I feel good about this. Uh, are you going to sleep here? No, I'm staying in the girls' bunk. Nice, nice. So this is all scam, so you can just watch, you know, girls change and stuff? Yep, you figured out my master plan. Do you pee standing up or lying down? The fuck? Do you pee lying down? Okay, you know what, everyone? I'm just going to ask the thing that we're all thinking, but not asking. What does your crotch look like? That was my question. Thank you. I know. Someone had to. Oh, God, this is a disaster, but don't cry. They'll think you're weak, and then they'll pounce. My crotch looks like the back of your mom's head while she's slurping me off. But what is my mom slurping off? Please, just tell us if you have a dick. Your buttocks remain the same, correct? Shut the fuck up, Milk. Shut the fuck up, all of you. Eat my fucking asshole. Well then, that went terribly. Yeah, and that that character is voiced by uh, Josie Tota, who you know is a trans actor. I mean, is yes, so fantastic in the role. Um, you know that this obviously comes after everything that happened with Jenny Slate and the the whole controversy over Missy and and casting, which is something that really I think blew up not just on Big Mouth but across many animated shows about just questions about casting and what it how it should be done. Um, I know you weren't 
you know, writing on the show when that all kind of went down. But how did you react from the outside to that conversation? Um, you know, I think what was, you know, that conversation specifically in animation, I think if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to misspeak, was really our show kind of was the first one to be like, yeah, we got to shift this. Um, and that's because Jenny had come to us and, you know, had said like, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm having this reckoning and I want to have this conversation. And so we did have a, a big kind of reckoning is the only word, you know, a, like, how do we do this? What's the best way forward? You know, what are the mistakes here? How do we hold accountability for that? And how do we fix it? And I think it really required everyone to lay their egos down and, you know, have the hard, difficult conversations. And if there's one thing that I can say about the show in general, uh, just being, you know, part of the the writer's room is that it, the the bosses do a very good job of laying their egos down. Um, and sometimes you don't, you're not that lucky. Sometimes you're on a show where it's like, well, this is our way and that's it and everyone else sucks. And I think our bosses really go, oh, I hear the feedback, whether it's from Twitter, whether it's from us, whether wherever it is, and like, how do we do better and strive to, to make it better? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very proud about how we handled that um, and, and making sure that we, you know, did handed it off correctly to IO and and set her up as well. Yeah, and it, it seems like the kind of thing that's going to change moving forward. It doesn't seem like, you know, any show now would would do that would do the same thing in terms of casting, you know, someone of a of a different race in a part or casting a, you know, non-trans actor in a trans role. I hope and and so. it seems like that is that really is a, a permanent change. I hope so. And it's definitely something that we continue to talk about on our show, making sure that we are authentic in that um way. And, you know, I think and I said this when it first happened, I think animation is a really easy place to just fly under the radar and not address it. Um, I think that if we, if you know, if we hadn't come out and said, I think it, you know, animation could really just continue to do what it does because you're not seeing the actor, you're just seeing the character. Um, and so I think it was, you know, it. But it's about the principle of it, you know. It's like it's about the impact of it. It's about respecting and honoring the power and the privilege a show has, and that creators have, and, e- and executive producers have, and saying even mm-hmm. if it, even if we could get away with it. That's not what we're about to do. You know, we have our we have a, a moral compass, if you will, and, and we respect our privilege and we're going to use it to benefit um, those who don't have it. You know, Big Mouth is is a really popular show among young people, which, you know, despite how dirty it is, and I think, <laughs> you know, and maybe that's why they like it in some cases, it does bring up the idea of representation and especially, you know, talking about the whether it's the character of Natalie or, or you know, anyone, Matthew on the show, you know, representation for young queer kids watching it um, compared to, you know, what you know, you or I had growing up um, on TV. Right. <laughs> um, how do you think about that in terms of the, just the importance of what, uh, you know, people are, are able to see? It's, you know, it's vastly important. I mean, growing up, you know, I think especially as queer people, you you latch on to the Disney villains because they are the most <laughs> queer. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like, you like that's, all, see, that's, all, that's all you get. Yeah, is you're like, you kind of see yourself in Ursula or you kind of see yourself in Jafar and and yet the, the mind fuck of like them being the bad guy, but yet there's something about the way that they move that feels uh, extra queer. So it's, it's really nice to know that there are, there's this show and other shows that are 
are coming out that are, you know, allowing us to not have to be the villain, but actually be people and, and be humans going, having a human experience where queerness is part of it, but that's not the storyline. And we really try to push that, which is why it's exciting that Natalie Kate comes back on human resources. And as you know, it's like, she's just there. There's, I don't think there's yeah, ever a mention of yeah, her it's, gender identity. It's not identity. about her being trans. Yeah. No, she's just a, a sister in this family going through something with her grandmother. And that, you know, that to me is the ideal. You know, that's where, that's where I hope all television and and movies get to is where we don't have to have the storyline be about the trauma of somebody coming out or about their race or whatever, but that they just get to exist and have the human stuff. And obviously, you know, labels of their identity will influence how they reckon with it, but that's not their story. Yeah. Is there an example of anything else maybe from, from Big Mouth where you, you know, were we're thinking about how this would be perceived by specifically young people watching and and did it influence, you know, the way it was written? Yeah, you know, I think Missy from season five, you know, experiencing that hate stuff and we were really, you know, cognizant about, you know, wanting her to be flawed, you know, wanting her to have the opportunity to be an adult and be messy, but also like not wanting to have her veer into like, quote unquote, angry black women. And it's like, well, but she gets to be angry, right? So the, so the nuance of that conversation is like, she gets to be angry. All we have to do is make sure that we flesh out the fullness of her story so that it's not uh, a trope again. You know what I'm tired of ixnaying? The Israel-tay! The what? The race talk! Missy May! Why are they talking about Issa Rae? You guys haven't taught me anything about being black. I didn't even know the difference between pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie, okay? I like all pie. Here go Uncle Cyrus with that all pies matter bullshit. You're black, Dad! How come everyone knows that except for you? Tell them, girl. Mm-hmm. I know I'm black. Then why don't you act like it? Thank so, you. I act like myself. Stop it, Missy. He's perfect just the way he is. And you! You better stop stealing our man! That really stands out to me because I think we did I'm really proud about how Missy's um storyline uh, broke down and I think the audience reacted so well to her and to Kiki um, or Rochelle played by Kiki Palmer um, because it was so expansive and full and fleshed out and wasn't just like a one note thing that typically black characters and, and black female characters are up against. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we just had, uh, River Butcher on this podcast, um, you know, talking about, uh, trans issues and they, them pronouns and, and all of this stuff that has become, you know, sort of, uh, a punching bag in comedy in some ways. Um, but then there are comedians like, uh, like River or, you know, like what's happening on Big Mouth that's kind of pushing back against that. And I'm just wondering if you, think about that at all and and sort of the role of of you know whether it's you know you as someone who who does use they them pronouns um in addition to he him uh what your is it a responsibility that you have to kind of respond to some of the you know more hateful stuff out there or do you feel like it's uh you know you just <laughs> just do your thing or how do you think about that um i guess i think about it uh, with I think my response is my work as opposed to responding directly to whatever the hate is. I think if I can continue to exist and stand in my truth and put out the work that's, you know, means the most to me, then there's that representation of somebody who's non-binary and who's queer and who's black and who uses they, them pronouns. And so there is, you know, for those of us who, who, for anyone who, um, 
does the same, there's a reflection of that as opposed to getting to a fight with somebody who just may want the clicks, may not have been doing their mental health work, may be on their own bullshit. And it's like, there's not, um, I don't find value in arguing or engaging with that. Um, I think there are times when you have to, and I, and I want to pick those moments really, um, specifically. Um, but in general, my, my course of action is to just continue showing up as myself, continue being as visible as possible. Um, because, you know, as you said earlier, like growing up, there weren't a lot of queer characters, let alone queer people in the public space to be like, oh, I'm kind of like them or, oh, I, I see myself in them. There's kind of only one version of it. Um, and so I'm really interested in being part of that collective that's expanding the representation by just being and by showing up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, during the, the uproar specifically over the Dave Chappelle special on Netflix, um, you know, one thing that happened was that the, was that Netflix actually pointed to shows like Big Mouth, like Sex Education and said, look, we also are doing this. Um, you know, as, as seemingly as a way to kind of defend what was happening, you know, with Chappelle. Um, did you have any, you know, reaction to to that as, you know, being placed as like, look over here, we're, we're also doing this good thing? Yeah, I mean, this is such a... It's be, thorny, I know. <laughs> I'm going to be very um, conscious about how I answer this yeah. because no, I, I appreciate do think... That. Yeah, I, I do think that there is. Listen, I think that um, uh, corporations are going to corporate. You know, like like <laughs> when you are when you are a network and you're a whatever, you're going to do what you you're going to say what needs to be said to like handle the business. But inside of that business are people, um, and there are a lot of people that make up Big Mouth and that make up Netflix and that make up whatever. And so there was a lot of pain that was experienced and felt. Um, and I do think that there's still value in. The, some of the content that does exist. So there is value in Big Mouth existing. There is value in sex education existing. I, I don't want to, we can't pull away from the value of that while reckoning with this other thing. Um, I get to say, yes, I'm so glad that these other shows with representation exist while also being able to say, I want to hold you accountable for this other thing that is harmful. Um, and how do we, you know, have that conversation, um, not excuse it with the other shows, but actually say, yeah, good job over here, but also let's talk about this particular thing. Um, and I, I, I think there needs to be more of that, um, less of the, less of the, uh, I guess the only thing that's coming to mind is a smoke show uh, and more about like, let's actually have the real conversation here. Like how, how are certain things still harmful? Like they're still learning. Uh, they're still learning to be done. No one and no network and no company is perfect. So let's acknowledge that and have those conversations so we can do better. Yeah, I think there was this sentiment out there that it's just it's just jokes. It can, how could it be harmful? It's just words. And that I don't think rings true for a lot of people. No, it's not. You know, I I think about words all the time as a writer obviously, um but just even in how I speak to anybody. I I want to be really intentional about it. I remember this episode of Family Matters that kind of changed my trajectory as a kid where I think Steve is being bullied as as usual, but I think it's like a little heavier in one of these episodes. And I think Carl is part of it and at the end of it, Carl says, like, you know, the, the sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me isn't true. That words do hurt and they do matter was kind of the lesson of that episode. And that's always stayed with me. And so I do think when you're making jokes, 
words matter, you know, and there are jokes that are harmful. Um, and the idea of saying jokes are jokes, I think is kind of lazy. Um, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I think there's just like, there's, there's a blinding and an ego and a numbing, uh, especially if you're not on the receiving end of it. Um, I think for a joke to be a joke, we should all be in on it. <laughs> you know, we should all be able to enjoy it. Uh, it doesn't, it's not about being politically correct or anything. It's just about, I mean, if I think about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, there are white comedians saying things that were quite inappropriate, that were harmful, that we wouldn't say, oh, well, that's just a joke. Today we'd be like, no, that was that's fucking not racist. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was fucking just racist and that's it. So I think the same is true today when we're talking about gender and sexuality and, and these things that may be newer to some people where we get to say, no, that's actually quite harmful um, and, and not funny. doesn't mean you're not funny. doesn't mean that you're a terrible comedian now. It just means that that particular joke might not be the one to keep in your set. Yeah, yeah. And also the idea that if something like Big Mouth can have a positive effect on society through jokes, then something else could have a negative effect on society through jokes. Yes, the idea that- absolutely. And the idea that like we're not always going to get it right, and that's okay. I think, again, the, the reckoning here, especially inside of comedy, is the the cancel culture and the all that stuff and it's like there's i think a lot of especially in terms of you know what was happening in my place of work at netflix <laughs> um you know i think a lot of the activists weren't saying like cancel this person can't like that wasn't the conversation it was no let's have a conversation about why this might be harmful and why we might do something else moving further that's more impactful right because like I'm, uh, you know, we're all fans of these comedians. We've all grown up on them. They obviously influence our comedy. Um, but I still think we get to say, hey, this thing that might, you know, might want to look at it in a different lens. And and I think it's the responsibility of the comedian to say, okay, I'm going to let that in and listen to it. And, and, and if you're telling me it hurts, I want to hear that. And I want to, you know, adjust accordingly. And hopefully that's what, that's what people do, but they don't always do it. <laughs> they don't always do it. But, you know, my hope is that more and more people will, you know, take that stance. Coming up, Brandon explains how he knew he could only make it as an actor if he started writing for himself. And later he reveals how he ended up becoming his comedy idol's personal assistant. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with Big Mouth creator Nick Kroll 
as well as other comedians who appear as voices in human resources, including Pamela Adlon, Mike Birbiglia, and Maria Bamford, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Brandon Kyle Goodman. So let's go let's go back even further in in your career um you know pre big mouth uh what was your entry into the entertainment world how did you decide that that this was you know what you wanted to do was it always, was it writing from the beginning was it acting from the beginning how did you think about it it was acting from the beginning my grandmother was a minister and my mom was an actress so i kind of grew up around these two women who performed essentially and also wrote their own work my grandmother obviously wrote her sermons every week and my mother um had like these solo shows had an hbo special all that so i grew up watching her write for herself she's a dark skinned you know black woman from trinidad who had long uh, locks natural hair before we were saying you know natural hair is beautiful before we were saying black is beautiful all that like doing that in in the 90s and in the early 2000s um so and in the 80s so I really watched her try and forge a path for herself and be successful at it. You know, I've, I've only known her. I never knew her with a quote-unquote survival job. I just knew her as my actress mother. Um, and so that that was my introduction to it. I, I was just always around it. And then around 14, I wanted to be a teacher beforehand. And around 14, I decided I wanted to act. Um, and so, but my mother was always like, know how to write for yourself, know how to write yourself. But I was like, I want to act. I want to be Denzel Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was pursuing that. And then in college, I went to NYU, studied at Tisch. Um, that's when I started writing as well, because it was becoming very clear as a black actor, as a black gay actor, that my, um, chances were going to be quite limited, um, and that I would have to create for myself. Um, how, how did that become clear? It was clear in just like how we were being trained. I mean, like you have me doing Chekhov, which is like, am I actually going to cast in Chekhov? Probably not. <laughs> you know, like I'm doing, you know, I'm doing all these, you know, I'm all the stuff that we're learning, all the characters that we're reading are all white. Um, I remember there was a play, this was a turning point and I hope they don't use this play anymore, but there was a play and it was a two-hander scene. So me and somebody else, clearly both characters are white because one of the characters, the one I'm playing opposite says the N word and my character doesn't, you know, is white. So it's not responding the way a black person would. So that was a moment where I was like, oh, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That that doesn't seem right. Like I'm never going to play this part. Like, Like what, what am I doing studying this? And it's like, oh, right. There aren't, and even like, in requesting, you know, to to play parts that are are black that I would actually be cast in, that was a whole thing because there weren't enough black actors to like make to do a scene. I can't do Top Dog Underdog with a white guy; that would just be very uncomfortable. <laughs> that would also be weird. <laughs> It'd be very fucking weird. Um, so like, so that just kind of made it clear that oh, this is a very white space, and I'm gonna have to work a little harder to find my place, especially since I'm not traditionally masculine. I'm not, I'm not passing as straight. Um, so it's going to be even harder. Um, and so that's where the writing came in and that's where comedy came in. I found, I found a home in like 
sketch comedy um because in there it's like we'll play whatever <laughs> like i played Lindsay lohan i played blue ivy carter <laughs> like it doesn't fucking you know we're in a sketch show it's like it's whatever um and was so, that a co- was that a, sco- a college sketch group at first or? we were it actually it did start with i wasn't in a part of it in college but it did start with a bunch of nyu alums and then i joined them after graduating um and so we did like it was a show called political subversities and we would do 40 new sketches and songs about the zeitgeist of pop culture and politics every week every Every week. Every Saturday at the pit, People's Improv Theater. So we would write, we would choreograph, we would compose, uh, we would like, I, you know, that's, that's that 22 year old energy. <laughs> that, that's that hungry energy. It sounds like uh, training for SNL. Was that something on uh, your radar yeah, I would that, you, say, that you wanted? No, 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 for me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> for some of the other and people, wh- SNL why, sounds why is hard. That? I have so much respect for the SNL people and the cast and the writers. Mm-hmm. That just sounds so fucking hard <laughs> to do that. It does. Every, it does. That amount of But it's kind of what you were week. doing. I mean, it you were is, probably doing even more. But I'm not doing it anymore because I'm tired. <laughs> So uh, that was not my trajectory, uh, but definitely the same vein of like, let's create this brand new show every week and and see what hits. And then what were sort of the things that you were, that you started writing for yourself or for that you were trying to get produced or how did that work? Um, From that show, I I created this character who has a very long name, Latrell Levine, LeBron, Lucius LaCrosse, Latavia, Lactate, Jackson. (laughs) Um, And Latrell is a talk show host. I always say, think about Wendy Williams and Oprah having a baby and it would be this chaotic character, trial and it started with these like little monologues but that character became popular so I started doing full length shows where it was like you were coming to a taping of a talk show um the tagline was terrible, but part scripted, part improv, all fabulous. I was very proud of it at the time. <laughs> um, to the point, you know, you, you yeah, know what you're going to get. You know what it is, you know. Um, so we would do hot topics. I would interview guests, all that fun, play games, all that fun stuff. So that was like my first kind of foray into doing my own stuff, like by myself, kind of producing it um, and, and putting it out there. Um, and that has since, you know, trickled into, oh, I, what is it to write for TV? You know, I was writing for a lot of stage, but then what is it to write for TV? And that was a hard uphill battle, <laughs> but we but we got there. What was the, what were the first TV things? Um, uh, well, for, for the first TV thing was me watching a show and being like, oh, I want to do this. And then being like, okay, so write a script. And that script being awful and the hundred <laughs> scripts after that being terrible. But having people, you know, who are writers and who are actors reading it, giving me good notes and me just going back. And then my best friend changed the game when she gave me Shonda Rhimes' Masterclass. Um, you, know, you know the Masterclass series? So Shonda Rhimes has one. And so my friend bought it for my birthday and I did that. And that's what got my script into like top-notch uh, condition. And that's what Big Mouth read. So it worked. Thank you, Shonda Rhimes. Yeah, that is, that is good. That's a good story. Do you feel like you had, you know, you did kind of get back to acting in some ways. You mentioned Modern Love. Um, well, that must have been a big deal when you when you got that. Was that something you were going after or how did that happen? That was, I was about, I was at the time working as a spin instructor and a bar instructor here in LA at this company that's now gone. Um, but I like put myself on tape, had no expectations because it was a tape in LA. They were saying it's New York, it's Andrew Scott. And I had quit my job. <laughs> I quit my job, was like planning on going to another gym to work. But the day after I quit, I got the call about Modern Love. Um, and so then I flew to New York, did Modern Love, booked something else, and then Big Mouth. It was literally like 
Modern Love October, something in November, and then Big Mouth in January. So and you got to be the hot priest's husband. So that must have I been did. exciting. And I, I did not know he was a hot priest because it hadn't come out yet. So he was he was just <laughs> some white guy from the UK who was like, "What's up, baby?" Um, <laughs> so it was wonderful. You didn't know then, you didn't know it was a big deal at the time. I didn't know how big a deal it was. And then I, after we, fil- I was also. Uh, I got a stomach bug while I was there, so I was sick for most of filming. Um, so I was really just not cute. <laughs> I really could give a fuck. I was like, I'm trying to keep my stomach together. I don't care who you are. Uh, and then I saw Fleabag season two, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Andrew. Well, when we first met at a party, uh, I was coming down with the flu. I could feel it in my bones. And I knew I should go home, but he was so interesting. So we spent the entire night walking around the city until dawn on the coldest night of the year. The next day, my mom admits me into the hospital. So for three days of of fever and hallucination, all I'm thinking is, oh no, he's gonna think that I don't care. Also, he's like a decade older than me, so he's punching above his weight. But when I came to, he was there at my bedside. Wait. How do you know how to find him? I got his number from the hostess of the party. I just had a sense that we'd gotten along so well, there must be some reason for him not calling me. He was right. (laughs) It's okay. The other uh, show that I wanted to ask you about, I really enjoyed uh, your performance on Curb Your Enthusiasm as as one of the uh, network execs. Um, is that was that something that you just auditioned for, or how did that? Yeah, happen? that was another thing you that we just put on tape, and and it seemed to work out, and and that was exciting. And obviously, that show is such a legacy, so it was uh, a thrill to to get to be in a scene and in share space with Larry David. Like that's fucking stupid. What was that like? Uh, I mean, you know what? It, it was, you know, we shot it as things were coming back with COVID. So I think it wasn't as fun as it could be because we were all dealing with all the mandates and kind of in our own isolated boxes. But when we were actually on set together, it was so much fun. Um, I mean, he just cracks a joke after joke after joke and there are just stories flying around and you could just tell that the, the, you just walk into this group of people who've been together forever and ever and just have um, an unspoken understanding. Uh, and it was just beautiful to witness and inspiring, you know, like I hope to one day have a show like that. It seemed like he was trying to say something about the <laughs> the executives, that way it works at these streaming services um, in these pitch meetings. Was that uh, was that familiar to you or did you did you have any, uh, you know... <laughs> Yes. I mean, yes, (laughs) it is. You know, I think, I think that it's, uh, it's funny because in any kind of pitching you're dealing with, um, people who are trying to hold creative and also business. And so it is funny, like how you're like those pitches, whether you're the creator or the exec, those meetings are extremely, uh, hilarious to me because there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of trying to get on the same page. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's all improvised. Did you get to get anything in? You know, any moments of uh, of improv that you were that you were yeah, proud of? Yeah, I mean, our characters we we improved a little bit, but you know, it was mainly between uh, Larry and Reed. So um, it was a lot more watching and making faces, <laughs> making, <laughs> a lot of uh, <laughs> facial improv. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. But it was it was also just brilliant to get to watch these uh, two like basically improv masters. I mean, they were just like killing it. Uh, it was hilarious. Just trying to hold a straight face was the thing. That was the trick. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, looking ahead, you know, now you have 
human resources coming out, um, which is huge. Uh, but are there other things that you that you were looking to do in your career? Are there things you want to do um, that you that you haven't been able to do yet? And now you might get the opportunity to do them. So what are you what are you looking yeah. to do? I mean, the big thing is, you know, like I I want to. I hope one day, you know, there aren't a lot of black gay showrunners, uh, queer showrunners. I would like to, you know, do that. <laughs> you know, I'd like to create a show or create shows. I'd like to, you know, be able to be, I'd like to be able to create my own stuff, but also be able to be in a position where I can help other people create their stuff. You know, my commitment is to telling stories that haven't been told and to um, allowing those of us who historically just haven't been represented on TV or in film or in theater, giving us that space to do that. So telling queer stories, black stories, POC stories, intersectional stories, um, that's like my, that's the long game for me. And in the short game, you know, Human Resources comes out on March 18th and then my book comes out at the end of September. Um, so it's like, you know, it's going to be a, a good year, <laughs> I think. Yeah. What's what's your book? My book is called You Gotta Be You. And it's a, I say it's like a part memoir, part self-help, but it's about how I learned to love the intersections of my identity. So it takes these pretty pivotal moments in race, gender, sexuality, and where they intersect and just kind of reflects on the lessons I learned. And, and I kind of keep saying it's a guidebook to self-love, the things that I wish I knew and were told when I was younger. Um, and and I hope is reaffirming to anyone else that's on their journey of um, embracing their most authentic self. So what I want to do now is our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to go through a, a few firsts from your life and, and career, uh, and, and we can talk about them. So starting all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? The first piece of comedy that made me laugh really hard as a kid? Um, I'm going to say it was probably one-on-one -on -one Dalmatians. Um, and there's a scene where Roly, who is the um, the dog who the puppy who likes to eat, um, he's in the middle of uh, being rescued, but is asking uh, when they're going to eat. And I related to that quite <laughs> deeply. And so that I remember being one of the first big belly laughs <laughs> as a kid. Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? Um. Yes, it was in middle school, uh, and I think I had done something with my voice. Like I threw my voice, or I might have like done like a character voice or when talking about something. And then um, Jessica, <laughs> my classmate Jessica, whose last name I will leave out because I <laughs> said her full name on another podcast. <laughs> um, but Jessica was like, "Oh, Brandon is funny," and that was when I was like, "Oh, oh I'm okay. funny. Oh, okay, work." <laughs> So that's when I uh, started to know that there was something there. Uh, do you have a most memorable audition story from from your career? It could be something that went particularly well or particularly poorly. Ooh, an audition that went well or poorly. Um, there's so many fucking times that you're in front of those people. Um, I can't think of anything that went well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, poorly is always like in New York, it was just always, you know, being late to auditions because you're dealing with the subway and whatever. So like, it was always like, you know, the summertime, like me try having to like come into place, you know, something sexy or whatever. And I'm like sweating from the subway and, you know, just like dry heaving. And they're like, thank you so much. And next, <laughs> so, <laughs> there were plenty of those, but nothing specific. Do you have a, a memory about the first time meeting a, a comedy hero or someone you really looked up to in the comedy or, you know, entertainment world? Do I? 
<laughs> um, uh, I was Whoopi Goldberg is my uh, oh, icon. that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and I was her personal assistant for a couple months after graduating college. But the first time I met her, I was uh, and uh, I was a PA or sorry, intern in her production company, and they had asked me to go to her house to drop something off. And so, like, I went to the house and I opened. She opens the door and it's just like. It's like fucking Whoopi Goldberg and like her fucking <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg glasses, like looking at me and like reaching her hand out for whatever the thing is and then closes the door. Um, <laughs> but that was like my my first interaction. And then when I worked with her, there was a time that she asked me to grab her Oscar for her. <laughs> no way. And I had to like climb up on the ladder to get to the top of the shelf where the EGOTs or all of them were. And I had to grab the Oscar and pull it down. And obviously the fear of dropping <laughs> that. Um, but that was uh, a, such a, a, a iconic moment. And just like being able to share any kind of space with her uh, was just... Did she just want to kind of look at the Oscar or do you know why she wanted it? <laughs> she, she was, it, it was, if I remember correctly, it was like there was somebody else there and they, she was just, she, she's a generous person. And so obviously she understands that people are like, that's a fucking Oscar. <laughs> so I think she was being generous and being like, let me, uh, let me let you hold it. So I just grabbed it for her to hand to a friend to hold. Well, what, was, what was your, what was your favorite Whoopi Goldberg performance or moment or something growing up? Listen, why do you love her so she, much? She is she's brilliant in everything, uh, from Eddie to you know color purple to ghost everything. But my number one will always be Sister Act two, uh, forever and ever. I I will also say like writing wise, Sister Act one has like the full plot and whatever, but Sister Act two is just emotionally such a, a classic that I will I can recite. I can watch and recite the entire time. So that's probably my <laughs> most favorite, favorite, favorite performance. Nice. Uh, and finally, I like to ask uh, comedians to shout out other comedy that's making them laugh really hard right now. So um, what can you, what can you shout out someone who, you know, uh, stand up or TV or something in a movie or just anything that you uh, have seen that, that really made you laugh recently? Well, listen, and I, you know, I can't hype them up enough, but Real Housewives of Salt Lake City is a comedy <laughs> to me. Uh, the Housewives in general, I, I find them to be the best improvisers on God's green earth. Um, so Salt Lake City has been really providing me a lot of joy and laughter <laughs> these days, um, for sure. Um, I'm also whether it's intentional a, or not, I don't know. Whether it's intentional or not, you know, I can't say, <laughs> I can't tell you that. But it's such a such a human case study. Yesterday. Uh, if you're if you're up to date on it, basically one of the wives had like a massive rant where she basically calls this other housewife a, a whore and uh, like rips her a new one. And the reunion was the second part of the reunion was yesterday, and Andy Cohen is literally reading her rant as though it's like news. And so you <laughs> said she is a whore and that she should do. It. And they're all nodding. They're like, mm -hmm. yeah. and at the end, Lisa Brown goes, "That's a lot." Uh, <laughs> just like <laughs> this is madness. So those are my favorite comedians. I'm also. Um, <laughs> I'm obsessed with Sydney Washington always. She's in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, and then my my coworkers at Big Mouth who all have their own uh, comedy careers outside of, of the show are also just, I look up to them so much. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the new show, Human Resources, is so funny. And I think people will, if you if you like Big Mouth, you will really, really like Human Resources. Um, so I think, yeah, congrats. It's very exciting. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you so much to Brandon Kyle Goodman for being my guest on this bonus episode of the podcast. All 10 episodes of Human Resources are streaming now on Netflix. And there are five seasons of Big Mouth there in case you somehow missed them. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.